You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. So uh, just a reminder that uh, Daniel set up in two separate books or two halves of one book. Uh, depends on how you look at it. Uh, the first half is, uh, is largely going to be narrative, right? So this is Daniel. He wrote this book as, a, as an older gentleman, and he went back and wrote the things that occurred to him uh, in his, uh, throughout his tenure. So he was a, a young kid in Jerusalem, and he was taken off by Babylon, and, uh, and he was educated by the Babylonians. Uh, he was integrated into a pagan society, but he never assimilated into it. He never bent the knee to their foreign gods, and he always worshipped Yahweh. And, uh, and Yahweh blessed him and his friends because of that. So uh, he, uh, he reigns, uh, or he rules with uh, Nebuchadnezzar throughout uh, the Babylonian Empire. Um, and, uh, and then the Persians came in, and then he actually ruled with the Persians. He was, uh, he was that good at his job that the Persians kind of integrated him into their society. So... Uh, and that's, uh, that's largely the first half of the book. So that's, that's the narrative side. And then the second half of the book, which starts at chapter 7, which is what we did last week, uh, the second half is uh, largely prophecy. So the first half, we see all these kings are having visions and dreams, and they have a hard time interpreting them. And that's where Daniel comes in, is he interprets those dreams. But what we find out in the second half of the book is that Daniel himself had visions and dreams, and that he himself had a hard time interpreting. And he needed help interpreting those. And, uh, and sometimes those dreams happened at the same time as some of the events in the first half of the book. So in the second half, we actually rewind a little bit, uh, and we're actually uh, in about chapter 5 of the first half, and Daniel's telling us the visions that he had during that time period. So uh, that'll be important uh, for us to, uh, to just kind of keep, keep our eyes on. Uh, also, just... I want to highlight for you that the book is also divided into there's history and then the second half is future, right? Which is, it, and it's, it's very unique in that way where Daniel wants us to know this is history, this is what has happened, and this is how God was sovereign over history. But then the second half of the book is Daniel kind of opens a window and allows us to look past history and what's happening behind history. The thing that motivates all of human history, the thing that motivates uh, what is happening. And that's the second half of the book, and so now we're looking at future. Uh, and this, uh, this really kind of begs this question of, okay, so all the things in the second half of the book, these are future for Daniel. But now it starts begging this question of, okay, so it's future for Daniel, but is it future for us? Or is it past for us and future for Daniel? And that, that creates a lot of debate, okay? And Ovi introduced this concept of close-handed things versus open-handed things. And so for this second half of the book, we're going to see a lot of open-handed issues where we get into debates like, is this a future thing or is this a past thing for us, but it was future for Daniel, and we can have those conversations, uh, yada, 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 right? Those are open-handed things. We can have those discussions. But there are certain close-handed things that we can't, we can't flake on. And we talked about that last week, like a certain close-handed thing is that Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, he descends, he breaks into human history through the clouds. And, and this, this is something that we can't flake on because we know that Jesus already broke into human history, but he didn't come through the clouds, but he came through a virgin. And so we know for certain that Jesus is coming back. And if at any point we'd say Jesus isn't coming back or he's forgotten about us or this is eternity, this is as good as it gets, welcome, 
right? If, if at any point we find ourselves saying Jesus isn't coming back, we've, 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 we've walked away from something uh, and we've walked into something less Christian. So these are close-handed issues. And so as we go throughout the rest of this book, we need to keep in mind those, those open-handed and close-handed things. We're going to talk about some of those close-handed things. There's another division uh, within the book of Daniel, and this also becomes very important, uh, is, uh, is that the book of Daniel was written in two separate languages. It was written in Hebrew and Aramaic. So Aramaic would have been the, uh, the general language of Babylon and eventually adopted by the Persians, uh, so on and so forth. And so uh, the book of Daniel starts in Hebrew, and then at chapter 2, it starts in Aramaic, and all the way up through chapter 7, which is what we were at last week. So this week, we're actually switching back to Hebrew, and we're in Hebrew for the rest of the book. So that's another division that also gets very important, uh, is because there's only three books in the Bible that do this. And every time that happens, uh, we know that the audience is kind of changing. That's why there's a change in the language. So starting in chapter 8, starting this week, we're going to kind of zero in on this is for God's people. God's people, uh, this, this message kind of belongs to them. Okay? Now, uh, at the, historically speaking, God's people were, was a nation of Israel. We are not the nation of Israel. Um, we don't believe in any kind of like replacement theology. But uh, we can say for certain that there are, there are bridges and there are things that we can share with that. We are God's people. First uh, Peter tells us that we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, right? We are God's chosen people, uh, but uh, we aren't necessarily Jewish or Israel, right? So that being said, the stage is set. Uh, chapter 8 is going to be a recapitulation of some of the prophecy that was actually taught, talked about last week. So last week, we talked about four different animals. Uh, there was a line with, uh, with wings, uh, and then there was a bear, a lopsided bear, who was taller on one side than the other. Uh, and then there was a leopard with four wings. Uh, I think you called him Turbo Leopard. I like that name. Oh, it's sticking. So, uh, yeah, we had Turbo Leopard. And then, uh, and then we also had uh, this dragon, this beast. He was kind of this amalgamation of awfulness. Um, and so we find out that... Uh, uh, that this bear was Medo-Persia, and we also find out that the leopard was Greece. This passage is going to kind of zero in. If you guys have ever looked at, like, uh, used a microscope, um, you look and you, you try to find what you're looking for on the dish, right, through a broad lens. And then once you find what you're looking for, you switch to a more powerful lens and you kind of zero in on it, right? And then you zero in a little bit more. That's kind of what's going on here. Right? So Daniel 7, we get this, this broad stroke picture, again, written in Aramaic. And now for the God's people, we zero in on this interaction. We zero in on this character uh, known as the little horn. We'll talk about that. And we zero in on this interaction between Greece and Medo-Persia. So uh, that's, uh, that's kind of where, uh, where we're going to be today. And, uh, and kind of the fun thing about looking at prophecies uh, specifically uh, apocalyptic literature, is um, it's kind of like looking at fine art. Um, maybe not modern art, but you get the idea. So, so fine art, at least what I was taught in college, I took a fine arts class, and, uh, and the professor told me, he's like, the, the fun thing about art is that the artist started with a completely blank slate, so everything in there was intentional. You look at a bowl of fruit, and you can ask the question, why is there an orange in there? Why not another banana? Why are there so many bananas? Why, why not a plum, right? And you can ask these questions because the artist made those decisions. He, he was conscious about those. 
And apocalyptic literature is a lot of the same way, where we can ask those questions. Why, why a little horn? Right? Why not one of the big horns? Right? Why this? Why that? Why are we getting any of this information? Why do we need to know about Medo-Persia at all? So, uh, and, that, and that's, that's, that's something that eschatology and really apocalyptic literature is built for, is it's, it's meant to stir up your curiosity. It's meant to draw you in, right? Ask questions, uh, get, get motivated on, on trying to figure out what's going on here, right? Now, what's important about this is that it's meant to draw you into something specific, namely, that's meant to draw you into Christ. And if we ever find ourselves in apocalyptic literature and we're being drawn into uh, how does this fit the news cycle? Like we've, we've done something wrong, right? And so we, we should be drawn into Christ. We should be drawn into what is, what is eschatology? What is this apocalyptic literature trying to teach me more about our Christ? And we're going to be asking those questions today. So uh, we're, I'm going to uh, read all of chapter 8, and then we're going to go through and kind of just ask, ask questions. We're just going to be curious about some of these things. And again, we're not going to be able to be uh, able to address all of the things in chapter 8. So, chapter 8, verse 1. And you can follow along on the screens if you'd like. It says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after which appeared to me at the first. So, he had the vision in chapter 7, also under King Belshazzar, and now this is the second one. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram was standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and, one, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him. And there was, no, there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth, without touching the ground. The goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, uh, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him with his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. The ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could rescue the ram from his power. And the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, his great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven." Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the hosts of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great and even, even as great as the prince of hosts. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And as a host... Uh, and a host will be given to, over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is a vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, 
and the giving of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to him, the, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Then I, Daniel, uh, had seen the vision. I sought to understand it, and behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and, where, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that this vision is for the time of the end. And when he spoke to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up, and he said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter days of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. So as for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece, with the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in, in place of four others arose. Four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king, bold-faced, a bold-faced king, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. And by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. And without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but not by human hand. The vision of the evenings and mornings is, that is told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for days. And when I arose, I went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll uh, kind of unpack what we have here. Dear God, I just I thank you for, um, for this text. And, um, and just thank you for uh, just communicating to us through, uh, through pictures and, uh, and images. Um, I just ask that you, uh, you kind of guide us as we go through this and, uh, and open our hearts and our minds to, uh, to what you want us to learn. Um, please, we ask that you just, you don't allow us to be distracted uh, by the speculation, um, but, uh, but really just be uh, be, to be drawn into you and closer to you. And, um, and please help us understand you and um, what you have for us. We love you. Amen. All right, so like I said, uh, really the, the fun of apocalyptic is, is you can just get as curious as you want. You can ask all these questions, right? doesn't necessarily mean that we get answers to all those questions, and Daniel didn't even get answers to those. He ended the whole thing with, I didn't understand it. And you're like, okay, cool, thanks, Daniel, right? Like, that, that doesn't, if, if he didn't get it, and Gabriel actually interpreted it for him, like, what hope do we have of actually understanding it ourselves? Um, so, in a certain sense, we don't want to just throw up our hands and just be like, well, let's just give up. Have a good Sunday. I'll see you guys next week, right? We, but there, there is something that we can glean from this. Um, and again, it's, it's kind of born out of this, this, this drawing into uh, or approaching this apocalyptic literature uh, with, um, with curiosity. 
So uh, there's, um, there's three things, uh, so I'm just going to spoil my points. I'd like to do that, so I'm going to give you my three points right out the gate. Um, and, uh, and this is what this passage is really, the passage is doing a lot, but there's at least these three things uh, that this passage is doing. And we need to understand that uh, this prophecy, this literature, uh, is uh, God intends for his people to first be equipped for the task ahead. Equipped for the task ahead. Be clear-eyed about the spirit of the Antichrist, or the spirit of Antichrist. And God intends for his people to be secure in God's provision. So I'll just repeat those one more time. God intends for his people to be equipped for the task ahead, to be clear-eyed about the spirit of Antichrist, and to be secure in God's provisions. So, I would like to, uh, to just kind of focus in on that very first verse, and I'll just read it again. Now we're going to put it on the, on the screens. Uh, it just says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me. So, this is the third year of King Belshazzar, and if you remember anything about King Belshazzar, again, that was back in chapter 5. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he was a great king, uh, and uh, in chapter 2, uh, we saw that there was this uh, four-kingdom model. Uh, all the, the statue was made of different metals. Each metal represented a different kingdom, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar was the best, right? He was gold, right? And, uh, and so he was the best, and he had the greatest kingdom, and, uh, and then he left his kingdom to Belshazzar, uh, which was kind of... I don't know, like a freeloading son type deal. He, he just, he, he really fell flat. So he got the kingdom and the, really the only thing he did with the kingdom was drive it into the ground and uh, was conquered by the Persians. That's what Belshazzar is known for, right? So that's this guy's legacy. In chapter five, if you guys remember, uh, Daniel was kind of neglected by Belshazzar. He didn't even uh, remember who Daniel was. And uh, Belshazzar is found having this massive feast, right? For days and days and days. He's just, him and his buddies and his wives and his concubines are getting drunk and just gorging themselves for days, right? And then there's this writing on the wall. He loses all color. He's like a dead man. He doesn't know how to interpret the writing. So he brings in Daniel, and Daniel basically tells him, yeah, like you're toast, man. And, uh, and that, was, that was kind of the interaction. What we get, uh, historically speaking, is that night, Belshazzar was actually... Uh, killed and Babylon was conquered. What's happening in the background is that Persia was already at Babylon's gates. They had already surrounded the city and Belshazzar's getting drunk and eating all the food while they're being under attack, while they're under attack. Like that's the, that's Belshazzar, okay? We'll just put it that way. So it was under the third reign or third year reign of King Belshazzar, Daniel gets this prophecy, this vision. This vision about uh, Medo-Persia falling to Greece. Babylon hadn't even fallen yet. And this, this, is, this is something that I, I think we often miss, is that when, when you look at, at Daniel's interaction with King Belshazzar, uh, Daniel's pretty bold, right? Uh, in fact, I, I would like to read that passage for us. Uh, so we're going to go back to Daniel 5, 18, and that'll be on the screen so Daniel's introduced, and he's told to go read the, uh, the writing on the wall. And, uh, and Daniel's like, yeah, I'll, I'll get to the writing in a second. I got something to say. So Daniel says, O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that was given to him, all people, nations, languages trembled and feared before him. And whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. 
Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart, Nebuchadnezzar, when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was driven from among the children of men and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was that of the wild donkeys. And he was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet from the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whomever he wills. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but God in whose your in whose hand is your very breath, and whose are all of your ways you have not honored. Again, that wasn't provoked. Daniel wasn't asked for any of that. He was just asked to interpret the message. But Daniel comes in, he comes in swinging. Why was Daniel so bold? And I think when we read chapter 5, we're just like, man, because Daniel's the man. That's why, right? But we get a little backstory, and Daniel has had now two visions about Medo-Persia falling to Greece. When it comes time for, Nebuchadnezzar, for Babylon, for Belshazzar to fall, uh, in Daniel's mind, Belshazzar and, and Babylon falling, that's old news. So of course he's going to be bold. He's going to walk into that room and he's going to tell Belshazzar exactly what's going on because he already knows it's old news to Daniel. And I think this, this is why these prophecies exist. This is why this apocalyptic literature is in the text is so that God intends for his people, for you and for me and for the people of Israel and for Daniel, God intends for his people to be equipped for the task ahead. We know who wins in the end. History is old news to us. We don't have to worry about what happens next. Belshazzar is panicked because he doesn't know what this writing on the wall is. And Daniel's like, oh yeah, you're like three kingdoms ago, man. Like you've already been supplanted and we, we're worried about Greece. Right? And so, and so as Christians, as, as people of God, God gives us this text. He intends for us to look at the world, to look at all of these movings of mankind, and we don't have to be anxious, we don't have to be worried, we don't have to be filled with all of this dread because it's old news. It's all old news. And it's old news to us because we know that Christ wins in the end, and it's old news to God because he's already orchestrated all of it. And so God intends for us to be equipped for the task ahead so that we can walk boldly in the, into the jobs that he has given to us. In this situation, it was Daniel walking into King Belshazzar's uh, banquet and kind of killing the party. That was his task. Our task is sharing the love of Christ, is sharing the grace that's been given to us. We, we have a task to, to actually love one another, Right? Show the world that we love Christ, that we're disciples of Christ by the way that we actually church with one another. We do life with one another. And this is, this is a task that's ahead of us, and that's why this, this text, text exists, so that we can be equipped for that task, and we can walk into that task with boldness. Nothing surprises God, and therefore we should be confident 
in that task. The next reason that this text exists is so that we can be clear-eyed about the spirit of Antichrist. And um, what we find out in, uh, in 1 John 2, I, don't have, I didn't put the text up there, but in 1 John 2 is uh, John tells the Ephesian church, he says, listen, we're, we're waiting for the Antichrist, the Antichrist. There's, there's a big one coming and it's, yeah, it's a doozy. But he's like, rest assured that the spirit of Antichrist, of the Antichrist, uh, is already here. And in fact, many Antichrists have already come. And so he, he draws your attention to the fact that there, this has already happened and antichrists have already come. And the reason why this text exists is because, again, it's, it's like a microscope and it's zeroing in on a very specific event and zeroing in on a very specific character, and that's the small horn. And the small horn also showed up uh, in, uh, in chapter 7, Right? But that horn came up out of the ten horns on the dragon. This horn comes up out of the goat, which would be Greece. And so it raises this big question, is this little horn the same as the little horn in chapter 7? And the answer is, well, First John told us that there's multiple antichrists. So yes, it's the same horn. It's the same spirit of antichrist. Is it the same individual? Probably not. And that doesn't really change anything. And so what we're seeing here is this, there's this little horn that comes up out of Greece. And God tells us some very specific information about him. So what I'd like to do is actually read that text, and that's, uh, that's going to be 8.23. Uh, so Gabriel, he's interpreting this, and he says, a king of bold-faced, or the Hebrew says, like, hard nose. He has a hard nose. A king of bold face who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. And without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but not by human hands. This little horn, this individual, um, again, just given the historical context, uh, Gabriel explains that there's this, this uh, goat, this shaggy goat, uh, who's I guess, a unicorn, shaggy goat. He's got like this one big horn that's coming out from between his eyes, right? Um, and again, that's meant to indicate, so he's fighting a ram that has two horns, and there's one horn that goes right in between the two horns, right? So he's, he's specifically equipped to destroy Medo-Persia. That's what that's trying to communicate. So, uh, so there's this one big horn, and that would be Alexander the Great. We know that Greece, uh, they conquered uh, the known world in just lightning speed, right? Uh, best estimates say that, uh, that Alexander the Great took the Greek empire all the way from Greece into India in less than 10 years. Right? which is just lightning speed. It's almost like a leopard with wings, right? or it's almost like a goat that runs so fast his feet don't touch the ground. Right? You guys see the imagery? So that's, that's this goat, and that's Alexander the Great. Um, and then after he conquers the world, um, he just gets a fever and dies. So that, that's, but whatever. So 
Alexander the Great, he's so busy conquering the world uh, that he didn't have time to settle down and have a family. So there's no son to inherit the kingdom. And so what happens to his kingdom is it's divided up by his four generals, almost like a leopard with four wings, or almost like a ram that has four conspicuous horns replacing the big horn. You guys see the imagery? Okay. So, so that's the, the four conspicuous horns come up. And then uh, Gabriel says that, uh, that those four kingdoms, once they, uh, they have run out their allotted time, or the transgressors have reached their limit at the end of their kingdom, then a little horn or a king uh, with, of bold face arises. So at the very end of this. So the Jewish people had this, uh, this rocky relationship with the king that kind of had hit them a part of their territory. It was a kingdom known as the Seleucid Kingdom. And, uh, and the kings of that kingdom, they called themselves Antiochus. So it's Antiochus one, and then two, and then three, and they got really creative with their names, right? So these were the guys that ruled that kingdom. And every once in a while, they'd get broke, and so they'd have to go down to the Ptolemy Kingdom, which is to the south, which is kind of Egypt. They'd go beat up the Ptolemies, uh, rob all their money, and then they'd go back home and spend it. So the last king to do this, uh, Antiochus IV, um, he, uh, he thought he was a pretty big deal. He actually renamed himself Antiochus Epiphanes, which is Antiochus the Glorious One. Um, there's, uh, there's some historical evidence that people actually nicknamed him Antiochus Epiphanes, which means Antiochus the Crazy One. It's a play on words. So, that, uh, but yeah, this is Antiochus Epiphanes, so he thought himself pretty, pretty great. He interacted with the Jews quite a bit, uh, at one occasion, he actually killed the high priest, and he said it in his own high priest uh, so that they could uh, do what he wanted. Uh, another instance is he actually slaughtered a pig uh, on the sacrificial table um, because who doesn't like bacon, I guess. But the, the guy, he just, he just never really, uh, it, it was never intentional. He just did what he wanted. And, and that's why a lot of people really did think that he was just, in, he was just crazy, and, he, and it, was, it was almost as if he would, just, he would just trample on the truth, right? And just did whatever he wanted. He just caused fearful destruction, just like Gabriel says. And he destroyed many men, and, uh, and he caused uh, deceit to prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he, be, he made himself great. And then toward the end of his life, he actually renamed himself again. Antiochus Epiphanes was now Theos, Antiochus Epiphanes, so that was the God Antiochus, the glorious one, and that was his name that he gave himself. So this individual very much ascended himself into the rank of God, and at the, at the crux of his insanity um, and rage, uh, at the very end of his uh, kingdom, uh, he met what was the new Roman Empire, and he couldn't quite beat them up like he liked to do. And so he, as in a rage, he went back to Jerusalem. He kills a high priest again. He slaughters the pigs again. He makes the other priests eat the pig. And then he sets up a icon of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. And he tells all the Jewish people, no more Yahweh, you're worshiping Zeus now. So this, this was Antiochus Epiphanes, and this is at the very end of his life. And, uh, and it's, it's almost as if, as if without warning, he destroyed many, which is what the text says. And uh, during this time, then the Jewish people rebelled. Antiochus Epiphanes, he just crushed them with the iron fist. And as best estimates say, about 30 to 40,000 Jewish people were slaughtered during this, during this time. 
And between the days of him setting up the icon of Zeus and the temple actually being reclaimed by the Maccabean revolt and being cleansed uh, was about three and a half years or 2,300 mornings and evenings. The reason why Daniel is given this message, and again, just for context, Babylon hasn't even fallen. And we're talking about when Persia falls and then Greece falls and then the, king, the four kingdoms have already run their course. And then Antiochus comes. Why would, why would Daniel need to know this? Why would this have to be important information? And again, it's, it's almost as if God is opening the window to show Daniel, to show his people, listen, you, you have to understand what the force is driving behind this. You have to understand what motivates this. Because if you don't understand your enemy, you can't fight your enemy. If you can't identify your enemy, you don't know what's coming. And this, this always confused me is in 2 Thessalonians, Paul talks about how the man of lawlessness, he sets himself up and he deceives the world and the whole world worships him. And he even deceives some of the saints. And I'm just like, how could that ever happen? And I think how this happens is because you get a whole bunch of Christians that aren't clear-eyed about the Antichrist. We're not aware of what it is. We're not aware. We're not educated on what we should be looking toward. We're not equipped. We're not well-equipped or clear-eyed about the spirit of Antichrist. We don't know what we're looking for. And just like Antiochus Epiphanes, it didn't get bad until it got bad, right? It was bad and annoying, and we could deal with it until Antiochus lost it. And in, in a very same way, this man of lawlessness, there will come a day when this gets bad. And we need to be clear-eyed about that. And we, do be, we need to be educated about what these antichrists look like. And so I, I, I kind of listed all of them for you, and I've already listed them, uh, just kind of in telling you about Antiochus. But these antichrists, they make deceit prosper, or they, trans, they trample truth on the ground. They're bold-faced, they're proud, they're stubborn. They appear wise or... Um, understand riddles. They promote themselves to deity or objects of worship. They cause fear and destruction. And most importantly, they seek the undoing of God's people. And this is something that you can, you can look at these and you can try to identify like, oh, this person is, is that, or this person uh, definitely has this list, or this person, whatever. Um, I think it's important for us to, to try to identify this in our churches. I think this, this is what, what's helpful for us is to understand that, that Satan is well in, he's, his mind is set on counterfeiting Christ. And to have a church that thinks that it's church, but is really filled with the spirit of Antichrist, that would be such a win, wouldn't it? And I think this, this is why we need to be clear-eyed about the spirit of the Antichrist. So we need to be clear-eyed about, is this, is this you? Is this me? And too often, I, I do find myself in this list. And that's terrifying. And I think we need to be a little bit more honest about and be clear-eyed about the spirit of Antichrist because God, God does not want us to be ignorant about this. Even this promote yourself to, uh, as an object of worship uh, I was, uh, if you don't know, I teach theology uh, to high schoolers, and we're going over eschatology, and I talked about this, 
And this one girl raised her hand. She's like, I literally just saw a commercial the other day. It was like a lotion commercial or a soap commercial. I can't remember. Inconsequential. You don't need to know that. So she told me about this commercial. And at the end of the commercial, it says, worship yourself. And I was like, wow, that's pretty on the nose. Like, that's, that is <laughs> hard nose, right? It's, uh, it's, I didn't mean for that joke. Sorry. <laughs> but that is the spirit of Antichrist. Worship yourself. Like, that, that, it's, it's running through our culture, and it's, it's almost as if Christians don't even see it, right? But God does not want us to be ignorant about this. He wants us to be clear-eyed. This is the spirit of Antichrist, and we need to fight it. And again, we can fight it with boldness, because this is old news. Daniel knew it was coming. And the last thing that God intends for his people is that God intends for his people to be secure in God's provision. So I just want to read Daniel 8, 13 through 19. And again, that'll be on the screen. It says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is a vision concerning the regular burnt offering and the transgression that makes desolate in giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to him, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli. And it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when... When he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. And he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the times of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the days of indignation, or latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. There's three things I want to, uh, to highlight about this. Is Daniel's getting a, he's getting a look into something that uh, it's, a, it's a pretty grim and horrible a, a part of Jewish history. Uh, it's like the Holocaust before the Holocaust. And, um, but what, what Daniel, Daniel gets this piece of information that he can't use. He gets this information that it's going to last 2,300 evenings and mornings. And again, that evenings and mornings, that's meant to signify there's a, there's a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice, right? So uh, there's 2,000 of those. Um, so every day you have two of those. That's why you divide it by three and you get to three and a half years. So Daniel has this specific time frame that he can't warn those people about. He can't tell them, like, guys, just hang in there for three and a half years, right? Daniel's going to be long gone. And he already knows it. He's toward the end of his life. And um, when he's writing this down, and it's probably why he's writing this down. This vision is intended to uh, help God's people be secure in God's provision. God knows, again, this is old news to God. God knows how long this, this lasts, and he puts a limit to it. He says, here and then no more. And then uh, he even says at the very end, 
He says, um, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end, so toward the end of the indignation, which would be this time, this uh, time period of, uh, of great woe, for it refers to the time of the end. Now, what's uh, particular about this is that we have other prophecies talking about the end of time, right, or the end of days, but this is, the end, uh, this is the time of the end, or the indignation. So this is a specific event that God has a name for. He's named it. He knows what's going to happen. He knows exactly how long it's going to be. And he's actually appointed the time. He's selected the time. This is when the indignation is going to occur. And he's already picked the guy to do it before Greece is even a thing. And uh, he's already set a time limit on how bad it's going to get. God is, 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 is deeply involved in providing his people with enough. They have enough to get through this. And I think this, this is why these, these, uh, these, these apocalyptic images are in here, so that we know that we have enough, we have provision to make it through. Things get bad, but we can always make it through. He knows when it ends, and he will end it. And again, we we know that we win in the end. This is old news. But what's really interesting is that what we find is uh, Daniel, as he's standing at the bank, he actually sees what looks like a man. It's it's very similar language to uh, what appears to be a man in chapter 7, and this what appears to be a man is the one that comes out of the clouds, and this, uh, this is the one that we know as the Messiah. If this is the same one, if this is uh, Jesus Christ, how appropriate would it be that he's standing in the canal of the Ulai? This is where uh, Medo and Persia fall. And this is where Alexander the Great destroys them. There's actually historical evidence of the Medo-Persian army that had 100,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 cavalry. They went up against the Greeks, which had about half of that army. And the Greeks lost 100 guys and the Persians lost 20,000 soldiers. The Persians were absolutely decimated, and they never recovered after that. And if this was Christ standing in that bank, wouldn't that be appropriate? That the one who actually creates history, the one who starts it all, the one who actually is the fulcrum of history when he interjects grace into all of it, the one who ends history when he comes back on the clouds, he's the one that's actually meticulously involved in even the battles that are waging. And he's not even so busy as to just say, Daniel, don't worry about it. He actually tells someone, as he's orchestrating history, he's telling Gabriel, like, oh, Gabriel, take care of that, right? He's, he's, he's like, delegating. So this, this, what we need to understand is that God is so intimately involved in all that, we, that all that is going on in history. We have what we need to get through the dark times, but more importantly, we have Christ. The provision that we, that's been given to us is Jesus. So even if we don't go through persecution, we know that when we go through hard times, when we struggle with sin, when we struggle with uh, just things in our lives, we always know that we have Christ. Christ died for us, and he lives with us, and he emboldens us, and he gives us his spirit so that we live life and life more abundant. Not only do we win, not only does Christ win in the end, but we win now. We have Christ now. We have provision now. 
This, this text exists so that, because God intends for his people to know and so to be secure in God's provision, be secure in Christ. He is the author, he's the orchestrator, he's, he's built all of history, he, and he's monitoring history, and he wins in the end. That's the same Christ that died for us. It's the same Christ that lived the life that we couldn't. It's the same Christ that took away our sins. And it's the same Christ that we get to live with forever and ever. So just to recap, and as, as I'm closing up, I just want to remind us that this apocalyptic literature, it's, it's, it's hard at times, but it's, it's meant to stir up our, our curiosity. It's meant to stir up our passions. It's meant to draw us into Christ. And so as we're going through texts like this, and, and especially through the rest of Daniel, uh, which gets pretty messy at times, what we need to always be sure on and always secure in is that this exists to draw us into Christ. This exists to embolden us to do the job that he's given to us. And it exists to, uh, to make sure that we are clear-eyed about the evils that we are going to interact with. Not so that we can tremble in light of the evils, but so that we can not be taken advantage of, right? And so that we can fight more clearly against the evils that are coming up against us. So as we go throughout this week, let's make sure that we are equipped for the task ahead. And we can approach our task with boldness. We can be clear-eyed about the spirit of the Antichrist or the evils that we will interact with. And let's be sure as we go throughout this week that we are secure in God's provision. Let's go ahead and pray. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.